You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we haven't met before, I should have introduced myself earlier, but did not. But uh, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I serve as uh, the other of the two pastors here at our church. Uh, we also have a great team of elders and deacons and staff. Uh, we're blessed with great people uh, who serve in a variety of capacities throughout our, our church. And it's an honor on behalf of all of them, uh, for whatever reason you find yourself here today, to welcome you. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. Those black hardcover Bibles that John mentioned just a second ago, Nehemiah 9 will start on page 404 uh, in those Bibles, so you can, can make your way there. Uh, crazy as it seems, uh, we've entered rapidly uh, the closing chapters of the book of Nehemiah. have been in the series for a couple months now, and we've got the rest of November to, to finish it out. Uh, and if you've been with us, and you, as you see on your bulletin cover, we've called this series Remembering for Good. Remembering for good. And there's a few layers um, to that title. Uh, one is that it's Nehemiah's own prayer. So in chapters 5, as we've read already, in chapter 13, when we get there, Nehemiah prays that God would remember him and bless and honor all of his efforts. But this book is not only a plea for God to remember Nehemiah, it's actually a call for the people of God to remember God. Who God is, who they are in light of that and what their role and place is in the world. Nehemiah 9, in particular, brings this uh, remembrance into focus. Uh, It is a survey of the history of Israel. And it recounts the story of God's work among his people from the book of Genesis all the way through the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And as it does that, it highlights both the great work of God and the incredibly tragic, repetitive pattern of God's people as they resist and reject and rebel against him. So Nehemiah chapter 9 is a confession. And it's a confession in both senses of that word. So first, it's a, it's a declaration of belief and faith. When we confess something, one meaning of that word is that we proclaim it. And so here the people of God proclaim, they confess the glory and the greatness of God. But to confess something is also to admit guilt. It's to acknowledge and own up to failure. And likewise, Nehemiah 9 includes the people of Jerusalem taking responsibility for how they have turned away over and over again from God. Eugene Peterson uh, once wrote, The past is not, for the person of faith, a restored historical site that we tour when we're on vacation. It is a field that we plow and harrow and plant and fertilize and work for a harvest. So that's what this text is. Uh, Both for the original hearers, the original participants in this prayer in Jerusalem, and, if we will allow it, for us. This This text, this chapter, is a plowing and harrowing and planting and fertilization in anticipation of a harvest. Because biblically, to to remember something is not merely mental recall. 
To remember something according to, to the language of Scripture means we dwell on it, we meditate on it, we, we get it into our souls in a way that transforms us. And remembering the great work of God in the past, it's meant to transform our lenses of how we view the present and the future. It's meant to fuel our faith and our confidence and our trust in God. At the same time, uh, this text is an invitation to admit guilt, to acknowledge and own up to our own failures, but not so that, that we might wallow in condemnation or make penance by feeling bad enough about our sin. Now, for God's people, we labor in the field of the past, including our own failures and sins, so that we might be reawakened to and ever awed by the mercy of God. And that we might be formed into people who, in our own tragically repetitive patterns of rebellion against him, learn to again cry out to him and find his mercy and his grace to help us in our own place of deep need. So I would encourage you this morning, I would plead with you this morning, do not read Nehemiah chapter 9 as a tourist on vacation. Read it as a farmer working the fields and with our hands on the proverbial plow together. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of one day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. 
But they and, and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of, the, of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you, had gave, that you gave them even in their own kingdoms and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. 
and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask this morning that you would help us now turn our hearts to you and to hear what you will speak. For surely you speak peace to your people. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In this chapter of confession, let's consider this morning these three realities. A righteous God, a rebel people, and relentless mercy. A righteous God, a rebel people, and relentless mercy. So first, a righteous God. As verse 1 says, it's now the 24th day of the seventh month. And so just a couple days earlier, the people have finished their seven-day celebration known as the Feast of Booths. And that has led them into this extended time of confession, both proclaiming the greatness of God and, as we've read here, repenting of their sins. So on this day, they again read from the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible, or what is sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch. And then they spend about another three hours worshiping and confessing their sins. Central to their worship, the end of verse 5 all the way through verse 38, this is one of the longest formal prayers that we have written for us in all of the Old Testament. And I read all of it, so I'm sure you're aware of how long it is. And in it, it offers up these precious truths about who God is and what God has done. So, who is God? Who is God? Verse 5, he is glorious. He's worthy of all blessing and praise. Verse 6, he's unique. He alone is the Lord. There is no other. Verse 8, he is faithful. He's the one who keeps his promises. Verse 9, he's omniscient. He sees and hears the affliction and the cries of his people and he responds. Verse 10, he is mighty. He's all-powerful. He, he set in motion miraculous acts and signs against Pharaoh in order to deliver his people. Verse 17, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a, a theme, a repetitive phrase in Scripture, and we'll talk more about the mercy of God in just a little while. Verse 20, he's generous. He provides not only our most basic needs like food and water, he provides for our deepest need, which is the guidance of his own spirit. And perhaps even as a summary of all of that, verse 8, he is righteous. He always does what is right. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 119, 137, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And often in A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God this morning, among all of these other attributes, Think of his righteousness. Think of his righteousness, that God's way is perfect, that the history of the world is God over and over and over and over again doing the right thing. 
Now, in any given moment, it might not seem or feel that way. In any given moment, it actually might be next to impossible for you and I to connect the dots of our present circumstances with God doing what is right. And if pressed, not even if pressed, if simply asked this morning, I'm confident each of us would be able to come up with a number of examples where not just in like the past, but right now, we are wrestling with that. Where we are having a hard time in our own lives or with people that we know and love connecting the dots of our circumstances to God doing what is right. I know I could. And that's not even to mention these huge global things. Like today during prayers of the people, we're going to pray for orphans in the world and we're going to pray for the persecuted church around the world. How is the existence of things like this part of God always doing what is right? I offer you no simple answers this morning because there are none. Instead, what the Word of God offers us here and throughout is camaraderie with his people in every generation. Who are the people of God? The people of God are those who believe God always does what is right and yet who often struggle to perceive that in any given moment. That's who the people of God are. And this text recounts some incredible acts of God throughout the history of Israel. But remember that embedded within each of these great acts are hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of individual lives and circumstances where in many moments it would have been nearly impossible for these people to connect their lives and circumstances to God doing what is right. What about Sarah, when Abraham passed her off not once but twice as his sister so she could join the harem of another man? What about Abraham, when God told him to sacrifice his only son that he'd waited 100 years for? What about the Israelites enslaved in Egypt for 400 years? There were four entire generations of the people of God born in slavery, died in slavery without ever tasting the freedom of the Exodus. What about the thousands of Israelites that were born into and subjected to other nations during the period of the judges? Zoom in on any one of these great acts and you will will find people questioning God doing what is right. Is God doing what is right? And that's exactly the situation that the men and women of Jerusalem find themselves in here in Nehemiah 9. How do their own circumstances align with the righteousness of God? And if all they look at is today, they're not going to see it. They're not going to see it. So what do they do? They remember. They zoom out. And they see in their history of their own people, this is the God who is faithful and without iniquity. This is the God whose work is perfect. And they stir themselves up by way of reminder. What has God done for his people Well, verse 6, he's made the heavens and the earth, and he's made the seas, and he's made all that is in them. Not only has he made them, he's preserving them. The universe is upheld by the word of his power. Verses 7 and 8, he's chosen Abraham and brought him out of his former home into an infinitely better one. And he made a covenant with Abraham to give him descendants and land and bless all the peoples of the earth through him. Verses 9 through 11, God rose up on behalf of his people when they were enslaved in Egypt, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he set them free and he cast their pursuers into the sea. Verse 13, he came down on Mount Sinai to speak, to reveal himself and his law. He showed, in other words, his freed people the way to live as freed people and not to enslave themselves again. 
Verses 12 through 21, he led them in the wilderness. He cared for them and provided for them so that they lacked nothing. Verses 22 through 25, he brought them into the land he promised to Abraham. And he drove out the peoples before them. He allowed them to live in towns and cities they did not build and to reap the harvest of seeds they did not plant. God did that work. They didn't do that work. Verses 26 through 31, when his people ran back to slavery and subjugation to other nations, he was patient with them. He continually raised up judges to deliver them again and again and again. And you can almost feel the people of Jerusalem as they recount these great deeds. You can feel them stirring themselves up to say, the rock, his way is perfect. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have done great things for us, and our hearts are glad. And when we remember this, when in spite of our own doubts and our own difficulty to connect the dots of our circumstances and God's righteousness, when we, like the people of Jerusalem, confess and proclaim who God is and what he has done, doing so forms us into people who are not only faithful, but who are free. Who are free. What do I mean by that? In their book called Everyday Church, Steve Timmis and Tim Chester highlight what they call four liberating truths that flow directly out of the nature and character of God. And they are these. God is great, so, you, so we don't have to be in control. In other words, the world already has a God, and you're not it, and I'm not it. And so we can stop, we can be free from over-functioning and trying to control everything. Second, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Live your life to honor and please God because the, uh, the fickle opinions of the people around you or even ending up on quote-unquote the wrong side of history, that means nothing compared to the, the opinions of God. And you're free from constantly having to worry about what everyone else thinks of you because God is glorious. And third, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God provides us with all we need, which also means not providing us with everything we want. We all want things that if we got them, it would be disastrous. And so you and I are free from having to enslave yourself again and again by what John Calvin referred to as the idle factory of the human heart. Every time we create one and try to kill it, there's another one coming down the assembly line right behind it. And then fourth, God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. The favor of God is yours because of God's work, not yours. And so you are free to love others, to serve others, to work hard in your life without needing to earn anything from that. Now, in light of Nehemiah 9, let's this morning add a fifth liberating truth to this list. Fifth, God is righteous, so we don't have to define our lives by what we experience today. God is righteous, so we don't have to define our lives by what we experience today, by our circumstances today. Instead, like the people of God in every age, without burying our heads in the sand, we look back beyond today to remember that God always does what is right. And so I'd invite you this morning, friends, remember these things. Meditate on who God is, on what God has done. Press these precious truths into your soul so that you might be formed more and more in faith and trust.
A righteous God is the first thing we see in this passage. Second, a rebel people. A rebel people. And let me offer you a really difficult, a really hard question to consider this morning. How many times have you sinned in your life? How many times have you sinned in your life? The Bible defines sin, and you heard Mallory speak to this really well earlier. She led us in liturgy. Ways that we reject or rebel against God and his design for the world. We do that by omission, things that we should do that we do not. We do that by commission, things we should not do that we do anyway. We do that by thought and word and deed and attitude and motivation. If you were to pile all of that, the thoughts, deeds, actions, motivations, the omissions and the commissions, you were to pile that up, the time and energy and the resources that we've poured into sin and sinful behavior over the course of our lives, how big would that pile be? How much would that weigh? A survey of God's work in the world is also a survey of the sin of humanity, by definition. And so it's encouraging and life-giving to zoom out as we do in Nehemiah 9 and see the cumulative work of God. But when we zoom out like that, we also see the cumulative sin and failures. It's not so encouraging. In fact, it's devastating. And so rightfully, the people in Jerusalem here are devastated. And they hear the word of God. They hear the book of the law. They recount God's great work and then seeing how far short they've fallen from that, from a faithful response, they're moved into the other form of confession, which is admitting their guilt, acknowledging and owning their sin. And over the course of these verses, they confess the following, that they were disobedient and rebellious, that they put God's law, it says, behind their backs. They, they weren't just ignorant or negligent, they actively suppressed the truth that God had revealed. They killed God's prophets. So they surrounded themselves with voices that told them exactly what they already wanted to hear and they eliminated the voices of people who spoke what was actually true. They committed awful blasphemies. They did what was evil in God's sight, it says, and they did that cyclically and repetitively as in the era of the judges. They became arrogant and presumptuous. And this is kind of crazy. In the original Hebrew language, the word in verse 16 there for presumptuous, that's the same word that the book of Exodus uses to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites. The Egyptians acted presumptuously toward the Israelites when they were enslaved, but God sets them free. What do they do? They turn around and now act presumptuously to the one who set them free. They sinned against God's ordinances. And the big deal is that they sinned against God. Not that it... Not that it didn't have negative effects and consequences, it did. Not that it created a, a sense of guilt, it did that too. Not that it offended and hurt and wounded other people deeply because surely it did that. But the biggest deal is that it was an offense, it was a rebellion against God himself. It says here in this text as well that they stubbornly turned their backs, they refused to listen. They, they actually became like an animal refusing to take on a yoke. They were stiff-necked. And it says also that they paid no attention to God. They lived their lives, though they were saved by him, though they were delivered by him time and again, they lived their lives as if he wasn't there or if his existence was inconsequential. It's quite the resume. Quite the resume. And when we read Nehemiah 9, it's possible to look at the history of the people of Israel and think, how could these people be so stubborn? How could these people be so wicked and miss it that many times. 
all that God was doing for them, and, and this is how they responded? I used to think that when I read the Bible. Now I think, God help me, I do exactly the same thing. I do exactly the same thing. This is a zoomed out, cumulative view of the sin of Israel and the rebellion of Israel. What would mine look like? What would mine look like? And when I start to think about that, it's overwhelmingly evident that the weight of my pile of accumulated sin is far more than enough to crush me completely. There's a danger to thinking about this. To that question I posed to you, how many, how many times have you sinned in your life? There's a danger to thinking about that. And the danger is that we won't complete the story and we'll live hopelessly and we'll live crushed under the weight of that. And maybe some of you came in this morning hopeless and crushed under the weight of that. But I would also propose to you this morning, there's an equal danger in never thinking about this. We're prone to, to radically overestimate ourselves and to be naive about what we both individually and collectively are not only capable of, but what we've already participated in. Most importantly, most importantly, the danger to never thinking about this is that we will miss the unimaginable worth of the mercy of God. And so third, let's talk about that. Let's talk about relentless mercy. The story of Israel and the story of our own lives is the same. A righteous God, a rebel people, and relentless mercy. God does what is right, we do what is wrong, and God responds over and over again with mercy. And all over this passage, I hope you heard it, we read of the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the patience of God. Freed from Egypt, the Israelites appoint a leader to turn back to their slavery. They make a golden calf to worship. They exchange the glory of God for a cow that eats grass. And God responds what? He responds with mercy. And in the period of the judges, God gives them over to be ruled by enemies. He allows them to experience the consequences of their rebellion, which is a life apart from him. But as soon as they cry out to him for deliverance, he raises up a deliverer to rescue them. And he does that over and over and over again. Bearing with them, it says. And then in verse 31, refusing to make an end of them or forsake them. Why? Because he is a gracious and merciful God. And now, Nehemiah 9, in the midst of the 5th century BC, people are crying out to God yet again. Their, their ancestors were sent into exile years before because of their own rebellion. They're now returned from exile, but as verses 36 and 37 put it, they are still slaves in the land that God gave to their ancestors, and they are still in great distress. This is what the whole chapter builds to. Remembering the past, plowing and planting and fertilizing that field of the past. They're stirred up to a harvest of expectation and bold faith. For what? For more mercy. And think about how audacious that is. Think about recounting the sins of your entire life and all the ways that you've failed and rebelled and rejected against God and then going, I'm going to ask for more mercy. That's exactly what they do here. They cry out expecting that just as God has done time and time again throughout their history, he will once again show mercy to them. 
And this is what you and I are meant to do when we come face to face with our own sin. When we're overwhelmed by the enormity of it. As much as the people of Jerusalem had reason to believe that God would hear and would respond with more mercy, you and I have more. You and I have more because in our rearview mirror, we not only have creation and the exodus and the return from exile, we have the work of Jesus Christ. The one who took on flesh to enter into this broken world. The one who, unlike us, lived a perfectly faithful life. And as our accumulated sins threatened to crush us, Jesus took them upon himself. Isaiah 53 says that it was the will of God to crush him. And on the cross, Jesus was crushed in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, a righteous God in the place of, in the stead of, a rebel people, so that all that would be left for you and me is the relentless mercy of God. An author named James Hamilton writes this. He says, don't be discouraged by the history of disobedience in your own life. Use it to highlight the mercies of God. Use it to highlight the mercies of God. The more we recognize our own history of sin, our own rebellion, the more it will serve to magnify the worth of what Jesus has accomplished. There's a well-known diagram. It's called the cross chart. It's been used by a number of different authors, a number of different resources uh, throughout recent years. And it's really simple, but it's really profound. I'm going to ask if we put it on the screen for just a second. I don't know how well you'll be able to see that, but the top line says a deeper and deeper knowledge of God's holiness, that God is perfect. We might also say God's righteousness, that he always does what is right. The bottom line says a deeper and deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. It's not that we are getting more sinful over the course of our lives, hopefully the opposite by the grace of God. It's that we're becoming more and more aware of our own history, of that pile of sin that's been accumulated, that has accumulated over the past of our lives. And what we see here in this is that, is that there's a direct relationship. The more we understand, the more we perceive the holiness and righteousness of God, the more we perceive our own sinfulness and how we don't measure up to that, correspondingly, more and more will we perceive the worth of what Christ has accomplished. If God's holiness is only about this big in our eyes and our sinfulness is only about this big in our eyes, then so, therefore, the cross of Christ is also small and minimized and not worth much. A nice gesture, maybe. But if God is completely holy and righteous and if we are completely rebellious in our own sinfulness, the more that we progress in the Christian life and see these things, the bigger and bigger the cross becomes, the more and more valuable the worth of what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection becomes. This is the harvest of our labor in the past. This is the harvest of it. We don't drudge up all of this stuff from the past so that we can wallow in condemnation so that we can remain distant from God in fear. We do this so that for the first time or for the 10,000th time, we might cry out to God in faith and receive the mercy that has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Mercy is not what you and I deserve, but it is absolutely what we need. And it's what God has promised to give us in Christ. Not only when we become Christians, 
but over and over again, and so much so that the Apostle Paul can write crazy things, like in the book of Romans chapter 8, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, this is your story. A righteous God, a rebel people, and relentless mercy. Let that this morning renew your awe and your astonishment of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection. But as I close this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you have felt welcomed here. You are welcomed here in whatever questions and doubts and wrestlings you might be experiencing in your life right now. Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith and considering what you believe. And one of the common arguments, if that's you, that I'm sure you've heard, and even more realistically, that I'm sure you've experienced the negative effects of, is that all Christians are hypocrites. You heard that argument? You experienced that from people who are Christians in your own life? Christians say one thing and they do another. What I want to say to you this morning is that you're right. You're right. God help us. We are. And there are some Christians who are intentionally that way, who have no intention to to actually live out or pursue the, the things that they proclaim. I don't think that's most Christians. And for anyone like that who has no intention to actually follow through, I just want you to hear that myself as a fellow Christian, I would, I would doubt or struggle with the sincerity of their own profession if that was where a Christian was coming from. But I do want to say to you this, all Christians are hypocrites in some way. To be a Christian is to proclaim that following Jesus is the right way, the only way to live. And that guarantees that we will be hypocrites. Why? Because we proclaim something that we don't always follow through on. Nehemiah 9 and passages like it should forever shatter any kind of rose-colored glasses we might have. Who are the people of God? They are disobedient, murdering, blaspheming, arrogant, evil, wicked, stubborn people. They are people who respond to the righteousness of God with rebellion over and over again. And they are those who receive his mercy, who recognize their sin and repent of it and then pursue faithfulness to him again. That's the only difference. That's the only difference. The world is not filled with good people and bad people. The world is not filled with neutral people who choose to then be good or be bad. The world is filled with rebellious people who either double down on their rebellion and remain separated from God or who confess, who believe God's greatness, who acknowledge their sin and who trust Jesus' death and resurrection to lay hold of God's mercy on their behalf. And that invitation is held out to you right now. Not when you clean your life up, not when you get things together, not when you can present a little bit better story from what you can present today. The only thing that you need is your need. And so if that's you during communion this morning or after the service, I'll be available to talk with anyone who'd like to do that. It would be an honor and a joy to wrestle through wherever you find yourself in that today. Or if you came with a friend or you came with a family member, you can ask them more about that on your way home or on your way to lunch. Wherever you find yourself this morning, may your eyes be opened to the beauty and the worth of God's mercy. He is righteous. We are rebels but thanks be to God through the work of Jesus, relentless mercy is ours. And that is not only the story of Israel, it's not only the story of the world. By faith in Jesus, 
It is our story. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. And we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. I pray for my friends this morning as I've prayed for myself that those of us who have come in bearing the heavy load of our sin, of our own rebellion, that we would again, or even for the first time, find the mercy that you have accomplished for us in your death and resurrection. That we would see your greatness, that we would be humbled and broken over our rebellion, but that we would look to Jesus and we would lay hold of your mercy. That is what this table is all about. That is what this table enacts and displays. You have poured out your blood. You have offered up your body so that the mercy of God might be ours. And so grant that we might come and receive it today. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.